You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Well, we're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Dr. Abby Eblen. I'm from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined with my partners in crime, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Howdy. Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey. And our special guest today is Dr. Glenn Weitzman, who is also from Nashville Fertility Center. Today, he is going to be discussing fibroid tumors in the uterus and kind of how it impacts fertility. Um, Glenn, I can say from personal experience, does amazing surgery. He primarily does robotic surgery, uh, but he also does open laparotomy. So we'll talk a little bit about that today and when that's indicated. But before we get started, we want to answer some of your questions that were sent online. So our most recent question is, if I've had IVF at one program and want to move to a different program or want to move the embryos to a different program, how do I do that? Who wants to start with that first? I feel like the standard answer to that is very carefully. <laughs> I, feel <laughs> I, like my, I feel like my dad would tell me that answer. You know, I think, I think there's, it's a little complicated and, and sometimes, you know, life takes us places that we don't expect it. I think most, um, fertility specialists would recommend you, if you can, to have your embryos thawed and transferred at the place they were cryopreserved because each lab has its own different protocols. Um, they know what works well with their embryos. However, sometimes that just doesn't work out and, and we do have to transfer embryos. And fortunately, we have Federal Express. And most of the time, it, it's amazing that you can, you know, patients are always amazed that you can ship embryos really all around the world. I think we have shipped some embryos. We, we were talking earlier, but I think we've shipped some embryos to Australia and maybe to India too. I'm not sure. Anywhere FedEx goes. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there's other special services, not just FedEx, but special services that handle everything from the transport to the tanks to the monitoring systems along the way. You know, the one thing that is in the back of everybody's mind that nobody really wants to say out loud is what happens if something happens mid-transport. Um, because even if you had somebody there, you don't necessarily have the ability to do something about it right away, which is part of the reason why most of us try to avoid transferring um, egg sperm or embryos around if we can at all avoid it. But it certainly happens all the time. The vast majority of them get to where they're going and are happy, healthy little cells. One thing that made me, when you said that, made me think, um, I spoke to an embryologist once in Louisiana that he was an embryologist in the midst of Katrina. And about five to seven days after all that happened, he went in via boat, they rowboat into the lab and we're able to rescue all their embryos because the liquid nitrogen in the tanks tends to stay around for, I think, a couple of weeks at least, if not longer. Mm -hmm. So, um, so you know, hopefully that'll never happen to anybody. But even if they got left somewhere for an extra day, it probably wouldn't be a big deal. So now that we've answered that question, we're going to move on and, you know, get to know Glenn just a little bit. Glenn's one of the jokesters in our office. And he is one of the few doctors that has enough courage on Halloween to actually dress up in Halloween costumes. And it always amazes me how he can be dressed up like Dracula with blood dripping down his cheek and walk in and talk to patients about such a serious subject. So Glenn, what is your favorite, <laughs> what was your favorite Halloween costume? And tell me how you do that. 
maybe I'll dress up this year if you if you tell me how to do it. <laughs> well, you know, it's different in, inspiration depending on the year. Uh, one year I heard that secretly one of the nurses was going to dress up as me. So I decided <laughs> to dress up as her without her knowing. Um, I don't make a pretty woman, so I'm probably not. <laughs> Did you shave your beard for that? Or, I uh... shaved, shaved my beard and um, I put I got a wig from Party City and she was a UT fan. So I got some orange scrubs and some UT paraphernalia and, uh, and we posed together. <laughs> that would be the other UT, the Tennessee UT, not the Texas UT, Susan. That's true. Well, well, you have to understand, I'm a fight in Texas Aggie. So we refer oh. to that school down the road from us as TU. <laughs> oh, okay. I do love okay. all my TSIP friends. So what about you guys? Have you guys dressed up in the office on Halloween? Not since my pediatric rotations as a resident. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I have, but in part, I mean, I have two small human beings and a dog running around at home and a husband who's also in medicine. So most days I count it as a victory when I get out of the house with the same pair of shoes on both feet as opposed to mismatching shoes. Um, and so... So anything extra, like I'm, I am grateful to be fully clothed and clean when I leave the the house, much less dressed up to look like anybody else. Um, <laughs> I want to know what your patients did when they walked in the room and they saw, you know, an otherwise distinguished, who they were expecting to see, which is a distinguished uh, looking gentleman. And instead they walk in with, you know, frizzy, frizzy wig and UT regalia and a, a pseudo woman <laughs> sitting in front of them. Well, fortunately, my nurses are very smart and they give the patients a little bit of a heads up. So it's not a complete surprise. But, you know, patients are coming. Um, for them, it's a pretty serious visit. Um, and adding a little bit of levity you know, to, to the day is often helpful. And most of, you know, they were, they've been very acceptable uh, to it. And maybe they're surprised at what I look like the next time they see me. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the bigger issue. <laughs> I mean, do you ever have someone who says, you know, I, I found after seeing you as, as your nurse that I really prefer a female doctor. So, Doc, could you please wear the wig and the whole gut up the next time I see you too? Um, I mean, that's I, really going the extra mile for your patients. There's been many opportunities uh, where patients have wanted to see a female doctor and I've drawn the line. <laughs> I don't make a pretty woman. I'm not putting on a skirt. <laughs> Unless it's Halloween. <laughs> uh, I mean, I have uh, have great partners, women partners that will be happy to take care of those patients. They do a great job. So. so we'll have to stay tuned to see what you are this Halloween. It's always like the talk of the office. What's Glenn going to dress up like this this, uh, this year? So we'll be on no expectation. We'll be looking forward to that. So we're going to turn our attention a little bit to the subject of this talk, and that is to talk about uterine lymphoma, or better known as fibroids. And so, Glenn, give us some knowledge about fibroids. Tell us what fibroids are and why they're important and when you'd consider removing them before fertility treatment. So uh, fibroids are benign or non-cancerous tumors or growths within uh, the uterus. Um, they derive from the muscle wall of the uterus, and so they could, they could come out anywhere in the uterus. Uh, the inside cavity where the baby typically grows next to that cavity in the muscle wall, on the outside of the uterus. And any woman uh, can develop fibroids and a lot of women don't develop fibroids. Uh, there are certain populations that are more prone to developing fibroids. And of course, they, 
the incidence, the chance that a woman will have a fibroid increases as women uh, get older. So typically, you know, women in their 30s, uh, it's more common in uh, the African-American population. But again, women of any racial, ethnic background can have fibroids. And for most women, fibroids don't cause any problems. They're there, they may grow slowly, uh, they may grow quickly and become a problem. So when we say tumor, though, a lot of people think tumor as cancer tumor. So how is this different than, than a tumor that is cancerous that has to come out? A tumor in medical terminology just means a growth. So we don't, you know, yeah, it's common to think about a cancer. But the difference is a cancer can and will often spread to different parts of the body and, and cause many problems, significant health problems. Whereas the fibroids just grow where they are and they don't spread to anywhere else in the body. Uh, a woman can have one little fibroid, one big fibroid, a whole bunch of fibroids of different sizes in different places in the uterus. It just varies significantly from patient to patient. So Glenn, how do you counsel patients about kind of the location of fibroids? I always compare fibroids to real estate, location, location, location. Mm, yeah, very important. So in general, as you are aware, we are much more concerned about fibroids that are close to or involve the lining of the inside of the uterus, the lining, the place where the embryo and plants and the, and the pregnancy grows. So the closer and more involved they are with the lining or the inside of the uterus, the greater our concern about how the fibroids may affect fertility and things like uh, miscarriage risk and complications related to pregnancy. And then, of course, fibroids that are on the outside of the uterus are less likely to cause problems, but any fibroid has the potential to cause, cause a problem. Uh, the other way that I look at fibroids is what kind of symptoms they're causing. So a lot of women have no symptoms from their fibroids. Uh, and then some women have a lot of symptoms from their fibroids that may even be located within the wall and far away from the lining. What are common symptoms of fibroids that women often present to besides not being able to get pregnant? That's a great question. So the most common symptoms are painful periods and heavy bleeding with their periods. So, uh, there's theories about how fibroids affect the bleeding in the uterus, and I don't know that we need to go into that, but they commonly cause much heavier bleeding, uh, sometimes to the point that our patients are very anemic. And uh, we've all seen patients that have ended up needing blood transfusions because of their anemia. So um, fortunately, that's, it, it doesn't get that bad most of the time. Whenever you have someone where you're giving them a, a new diagnosis, there's always two lines of thought that, that people seem to follow. And the first one is, how bad is this? And the second one is, what do I do about it? And, and going further on the how bad it could be, you had mentioned you know, anemia and maybe blood transfusions, but um, to kind of allay some of the fears of our patients when we say, oh, you, know, you have fibroids, is there anything inherently dangerous about them? Well, when... You know, bleeding is probably the most dangerous, you know, problem that we have to deal with. And, you know, most of the time we can supplement them with iron, which helps the body replace the blood that they've been losing. So we really have to come to the point of a blood transfusion. Um, in addition to that, uh, the mass effect, if you have a fibroid or fibroids that grow to great sizes, uh, this enlarging uterus can have effects and organs in the area 
you know, close to the uterus and sometimes not even that close. But if you have a giant uterus pressing on a bladder, a woman will often have urinary problems. We'll be going to the bathroom frequently, getting up at night to go to the bathroom, interrupting sleep. Um, you could have fibroids that are, you know, pressing on the ureters and carrying causing obstruction of urinary flow from the kidneys down to the bladder, pressing on the bowel, causing constipation issues. So there's the mass effect. Um, but generally, I mean, the woman's body accommodates a pregnancy, which is, you know, by terms quite big and accommodates it quite well. So most women accommodate even large fibroids, you know, quite well. I, I'm not sure if I completely address your question. So Glenn, what, what, helps you make the final decision about, yeah, we really do need to take this fibroid out before we get you pregnant versus, well, you know, maybe this is not that big of a deal. We'll let your OBGYN know um, and you'll probably do fine. So what, what kind of tips the balance for you when you recommend surgery for patients? That has to be a very thoughtful process because we don't want to bring patients to the operating room unless we really need uh, to go there. And with fertility, what the way we've been looking at fibroids hasn't changed a lot over time. If, if we evaluate a couple thoroughly, we may find other reasons that are more obvious than the fibroids that are causing infertility, and that may suggest we don't need to treat the fibroids. Uh, if we've looked and not found any other problems or we've addressed other problems and still not achieved a pregnancy, then we need to look at the fibroids. And then, of course, probably more commonly than that, is the symptoms when patients present with fibroids and have significant symptoms and have quality of life issues related to their fibroids. Uh, that's another reason to remove the fibroids that may be part of a fertility issue or, or even separate. So most of the times, if we, they're fibroids, especially if they're not symptomatic, we look at other factors, address them, and if we're not successful and still suspicious that the fibroid is an issue, will address it surgically. Uh, and maybe a little caveat to that is, again, if a fibroid is seriously involving the lining of the uterus or the inner cavity, I think we're more prone to address it surgically early on in this process because those fibroids really do present a problem. But you know, most of those patients are also having bleeding problems as well. So in, there are some people who may not want to have surgery or maybe people who have fibroids who aren't necessarily looking at having babies immediately and that type of thing. Um, and for some of those people, what type of um, medical management type tools are available to help control fibroids, whether symptomatically or maybe to even help with their size? Well, you know, there's nothing that we have available that we can use in the very long term to control fibroid growth. Um, you know, we have medications like Lupron that essentially shut down estrogen production in a woman, progesterone production, and that will result in fibroid shrinkage um, temporarily in the medicine. When you stop the medicine, the fibroids grow back. Uh, and of course, uh, patients won't be getting pregnant during that process either because of what Lupron does to the reproductive tract. Uh, there are medicines that we use to try to control the bleeding. Sometimes birth control pills are helpful. Um, sometimes even a progestin IUD may be helpful in limiting uh, bleeding uh, during a cycle. So those are common things that we can try to limit the bleeding if that's a quality of life issue for the patient. 
hopefully there'll be medications soon that can, uh, in the long term, for long term usage, can be used to limit growth and the symptoms that accompany um, uterine fibroids for patients. So talking about the size of fibroids, because we all know size matters, um, what is, how big can fibroids grow? How little can they be? What's the biggest size that you've ever taken out in one of your surgical patients? So that's a good question. You can have very small fibroids and have significant problems. Again, fibroids that are affecting the lining of the uterus. So you could have, you know, fibroids will start as one cell, they'll continue to grow. And as the cells multiply, you can have fibroids that are just a centimeter or smaller. Um, And of course they can grow to significant size, to the size as big or bigger than a woman having a full-term baby. I think the single biggest fibroid that I've removed um, was certainly over two pounds. I think it, I think it four pounds was the biggest fibroid, single fibroid that I ever removed. Um, but you know, you can get a conglomeration of many, many fibroids and have weights that are greater than that. So to give our, our audience kind of an idea of like the dimensions of a, a, a large fibroid, how would you compare that for our listeners? I mean, we've got a, a long history of ruining various food groups for people <laughs> talking about endometriosis with chocolate cysts and, and other things. So what food can you ruin for us today by comparison <laughs> to the size of a fibroid? Uh, we could probably start, you know, starting with a, a grapefruit. That's probably the, the bottom layer of what I start considering large fibroids. And then it just gets bigger from there. You know, you can get to a cantaloupe size. Watermelon? Uh, small watermelon. <laughs> How about the great pumpkin? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're talking about Halloween earlier. Like There probably are pumpkins out there that have been surgical problems uh, many times. It's amazing what the body can accommodate. Um, it you get fibroids that can be quite large. But, you know, hopefully if someone is involved in the healthcare system and has an exam on a fairly regular basis, uh, fibroids will be caught before they get that large. And typically if they've gotten that large, it's uh, the patient has probably been relatively asymptomatic in terms of bleeding, but maybe they said, oh, I've, I've just gained weight and I can't get rid of this belly. And it my belly just kept, keeps getting bigger and I thought it was weight gain all the time. That's the person that shows up and has a really large fibroid, a large number of fibroids as conglomeration. It's amazing what you see. So Glenn, when you get to the point where you finally made the decision, you and the patient have made the decision, okay, we're going to do surgery. What should a person expect in preparation for the surgery? And then kind of what would you describe would be sort of a normal post-operative recovery before they could get pregnant? So... After the decision is made that, you know, surgery is necessary for removal, the next decision tree comes, how how am I going to remove the fibroid? Is it going to be done through an open incision where I can place my hands on the uterus, on the fibroids, feel the uterus, remove the fibroids, or are we going to try to do this laparoscopically, which requires four small incisions, the biggest one probably about, oh, an inch and a half. And the big difference there is is the recovery, as you were just alluding to. If you can do this surgery laparoscopically with four small incisions, the patient could go home the same day 
and probably be back at work or their normal activities within about 10 days. Uh, if an open incision is required, typically the patient's in the hospital for two to three days after the surgery and might be away from work and their usual activities for three to six weeks uh, following the surgical procedure. So that's a big part of the decision tree and says a lot about how the patient's recovery is going to be after the fibroids are removed. And then when will they actually be able to try and get pregnant you know, after the surgery? That's a good question. Um, the deeper the fibroid is in the wall of the uterus, uh, the, um, the more we're going to want to wait to allow the uterus to heal, heal strongly so it can support a pregnancy. And you will ask probably four or five different people how long a patient should wait if a, a big incision is required in the uterus, a deep incision is required to remove a fibroid, and you'll probably get four or five different answers. Um, I generally ask my patients to wait four months after surgery if they've had a, if we've made a deep incision in the uterus before they try to get pregnant. I've heard patients uh, being told two months, six months, 12 months, uh, and I, I don't think that that's been looked at scientifically. And I think all those recommendations carry with it good intentions and, and well-meaning because we want the patient to be able to get pregnant, but we don't want the uterus to fall apart if they get pregnant too early, meaning that the uterus hasn't had a good chance to heal uh, before pregnancy is achieved and the uterus stretches and there's stress and strain um, on those incisions that are healing on the uterus. So Glenn, what kind of complications um, are potentially at an increased risk during a pregnancy following a major fibroid surgery? So that relates to the incisions uh, on the uterus most commonly in that we want the uterus to heal. Uh, there's a condition called uterine rupture or uterine dehiscence where where the incision from where the fibroid was removed, where it falls apart, tears apart, or rips apart during a pregnancy, noting that if there's a weakness in the wall when the uterus heals, um, we only know that there's a weakness somewhere when we put strain and stress on it. So a non-pregnant uterus is not under any strain or stress. As the pregnancy grows and enlarges, there's more strain and stress on the uterus and uh, a more a greater likelihood that a dehiscence or a rupture or tear or breakage can occur. That's, you know, that's very unlikely to occur. Uh, the published studies that I've read, the highest incidence of uterine dehiscence or rupture I've seen is 5%. Um, nowadays, I, I think that's much lower. We, we have an extremely low rupture dehiscence rate. Um, after surgery. So when people are pregnant, what, what is something that their OB may recommend um, to help prevent the, or reduce the risk of a uterine dehiscence or rupture? So the, the biggest stress and strain on a uterus at any time in a woman's life is when uh, a woman is about to have her baby and she's in labor. And labor is the uterus, uterine muscles squeezing on the pregnancy, pushing the pregnancy out, dilating the cervix first, and then pushing the baby out. So if there's been a deep incision on the uterus, we will recommend that she automatically have a cesarean section that's planned hopefully before she goes into labor. So typically the obstetricians will schedule the C-section no later than 39 weeks, 39 of the 40 weeks of pregnancy. 
and some obstetricians will schedule it even earlier than that. So that's, that's the biggest risk in pregnancy after surgery for uterine fibroids. Unfortunately, we've, we've not seen that happen in our patient population. I've had a few patients where at the time of C-section, there's been noted a weakness in the uterine wall, but no tear, no breakage. So we know that the uterus was able to hold, nurture the baby all the way until delivery without any no complications. Not good. I won't really call you out on this, but I think there's a patient that had maybe more than one baby that had a myomectomy done by you. And the, the high-risk OB doctor was so excited, she called our practice to say, the patient did great, no problems. And she went to term <laughs> with her multiple fetuses. So Glenn's a good surgeon. Well, that's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm too. But yeah, we, that's a good point. You want to try to avoid multiple gestation in uh, the ladies after they've had uterine surgery. And, you know, sometimes that's difficult when using ovulation agents. And sometimes, not often, but sometimes that, that ties into in vitro uh, because of our ability with in vitro to limit the number of uh, pregnancies, the number of babies that are growing inside. So, yeah, I asked my patient if they asked, they'll ask their obstetrician to take pictures of the uterus and send it to me from the system <laughs> so I can see what the uterus looks like. I think in this uh, long career, it's gray hair, um, I've gotten maybe five or six pictures of uteruses um, from cesarean section. So they don't remember me. <laughs> <laughs> they, they've got a lot going on on their minds at that moment. <laughs> so what is the, the immediate post-op period? Um, look like for someone? If they're waiting, you know, that four months or so to to try and get pregnant, are they out of work? Are they able to go back relatively quickly? Can they exercise? Can they have sex? What kind of life are they looking at immediately after having had surgery? So again, it relates, that relates more to the, the way the surgery is performed. If we can do it laparoscopically, pretty much within 10 days to two weeks, the patient can be back to all their normal activities. Um, they'll probably start slow with exercise that are abdominal exercises directly, but they'll be doing pretty much what they want to do fairly quickly. With an open surgery, uh, we're waiting three to six weeks before they go back to work, uh, two months or eight weeks before they go back to exercising regularly. Um, in terms of being sexually active, you know, two to three weeks after surgery, they can be sexually active. Um, but that will slow a patient's recovery, you know, a bit if it's open versus a laparoscopic approach. And what would really push you to do open? Because I think most people come in saying, I want to, I want laparoscopic, I want robotic, I want whatever the least minimally invasive. What things make you say, you know, I'm, I'm really thinking we need to do this open in order to do best by you? Really a good question. And sometimes a hard decision um, to make. <laughs> so, the first uh, thing I look at is the number of fibroids and the size of the fibroids. So if I have one large fibroid, and usually my, my limit for a fibroid within the wall of the uterus is going to be about 10 to 12 centimeters uh, around diameter, um, you know, I'll, try to, I'll prefer to do it laparoscopically. If it's bigger than that, but it's on the outside, what we call it the dunculated fibroid, it's attached to the uterus on a pedicle on a stalk, then we can remove much larger fibroids that way laparoscopically. And then the number of fibroids, because every fibroid you remove 
requires an incision in the uterus, removal of the fibroid, and then closure of that area. So if you have too many fibroids within the uterus, uh, then it, it, it gets, it's impractical and unreasonable to try to do that laparoscopically in terms of the time that it takes and the trauma to the uterus. So I'll look at both those things. And you know, every surgeon is going to have their own comfort level in terms of what they are comfortable doing in terms of the biggest size fibroid they're comfortable with and the number of fibroids that um, they will remove laparoscopically versus moving to an open procedure. And on top of that, you know, the, we have to look at the patient. And if I have a patient that uh, has medical problems, it is extremely uh, heavy and a thick abdominal wall, that person's going to be at risk for complications no matter how the surgery is done. But an open surgery is going to be more of a problem, more problematic and a greater danger. So I may make a little bit of an extra effort to try to do that laparoscopically so that patient has less of a chance of complications. And then we're also faced with, do all the fibroids need to be removed? So in some patients that are not good surgical candidates for an open procedure, I might consider doing it laparoscopically, telling them, listen, we're going to remove you know, these three or four or five large, medium, large size fibroids. We won't have removed them all, uh, but we'll get the problematic ones and we won't be able to get all of them, but we'll save you uh, weeks of recovery, days in the hospital, maybe the best way to go for you. So Glenn, what words of wisdom when you get, would you give a woman in closing if she's out there listening and she's trying to decide, you know, should I have surgery? Should I not? Should I go on and try and get pregnant? What words of wisdom would you tell her? Uh, I would recommend that she see a fertility specialist uh, because the fertility specialist is going to be concerned just about those points. Um, what can I do that's best for this woman to preserve and maintain her fertility? Um, I would recommend that she be comfortable and confident in the uh, physician that she's working with. And if not, there are many choices for her to make out there. There are a lot of good doctors, a lot of good surgeons out there for her to consult with. And if she gets the same message from more than one physician, then that you know just confirms that uh, whatever the recommendation is, is the best thing for her to, um, to take care of the, the issues sooner rather than later. Uh, a lot of women will have fibroids, have problems. They'll be worried, concerned, fearful of surgery, and they won't have it done. And they'll typically come back six months, nine months, a year later with the symptoms worsen and the fibroids larger. And now their surgery is, is a, a more difficult process overall. So, you know, take care of it, uh, take care of it in a place that you're comfortable and confident. And, you know, most women do great. Well, great. Well, thanks for sharing your words of wisdom, Glenn. I've been operating with Glenn for a long time, and he used to do laparoscopy before the robot ever existed with just a straight stick laparoscopy. So he has a wealth of knowledge and skill and um, is an excellent surgeon. And I know that from a personal standpoint. So we're going to close today. And to our audience, I want to say thanks for listening. Tune in next week for more. And also be sure to subscribe and leave us reviews on iTunes. We would really love to hear from you.
You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensor.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit questions about infertility on our, and we'll be happy to address all of those on our Ask the Doc segment. So let us know what your questions are, no matter how embarrassing they are. Thanks so much for being with us today. And this has been uh, Dr. Carrie Beanett with the Fertility Center of Las Vegas with Dr. Abby Eblen of Nashville Fertility Center, Dr. Susan Hudson of Texas Fertility Center, and our lovely guest today with his wide repertoire of skills, not only surgical, but uh, costuming as well. And uh, um, thank you so much for Dr. Glenn Weitzman for joining us from the Nashville Fertility Center to talk about fibroids today. We are so pleased that you could join us and thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be there. All right. All y'all have a wonderful day and we'll see you soon. Tune in next week. Bye. 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 Bye.